Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 450th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a singer-songwriter who the Los Angeles Times has described as, quote, an artist who has defied most of the modern rules of pop stardom in her unexpected ascent to the top of the charts, close quote, and whose music Time has called, quote, relentlessly positive and impossibly catchy. Bangers that synthesize pop, rap, and R&B with hooks so sharp it feels like they've been in your brain forever. Her lyrics are funny, body, and vulnerable. Reminders to dump whatever idiot is holding you back and become your own biggest fan. Close quote. Now 34 years old, she has already been hustling for years, but she's only been famous since 2019, when her third album, Cause I Love You, led by the songs Truth Hurts, Good As Hell, and Juice, took the world by storm ultimately bringing her a field-leading eight Grammy nominations and three Grammy statuettes, as well as leading Time magazine to name her that year's Entertainer of the Year. A self-described big girl, she preaches body positivity and self-empowerment in her music and in everything she does, including on her Amazon Prime reality competition show, Lizzo's Watch Out for the Big Girls, which recently won a Critics' Choice Award and is now in serious contention for a primetime Emmy nomination. She is, to quote her lyrics, 100% that bitch, Lizzo. Over the course of our conversation at her home in the Hollywood Hills, Lizzo and I discussed the role that music played in her life as a child and how the flute entered the picture. Her darkest periods, like when she suddenly lost her father, dropped out of college, and stopped talking to anyone for a long stretch of time. And her brightest, like when Prince took her under his wing. How she learned to love herself and why she feels it's important to help others learn to do the same, not least on Watch Out for the Big Girls, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Lizzo, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Great to have you on here. And uh, we always begin on this one truly at the beginning. Uh, Can you tell us where you were born and raised and what your folks did for a living? Wow, that's an interesting question. I was born in Detroit, Michigan. I was raised in Houston, Texas, and my parents were entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, can you help us connect the dots? I know it started out Melissa, Vivian Jefferson. How do we there were a few steps on the way to ending up at Lizzo, right? Can yeah. you can you break it down? A few small steps. For a man. Yes. <laughs> and one large step yes. for my LLCs. <laughs> um, so Melissa is my name. And um, in my group, Cornwall Click, you know, we were doing a thing where you, in Houston, you take your name and you put an O on it. So my friend Alexia, she's Lexo. We still call her Lexo to Rillo to this day. And I was Lisso, L-I-S-S-O. Actually, I was Mio for like a day. And I was like, guys, what? <laughs> 
Um, so I was Lizzo. And I feel like, you know, people were going, hey, Lizzo, Lizzo. It was just like, they just put the swag in it with the Z's. And I was like, I think it's cooler with the Z's. It's more striking. I love it. Um, so somewhere between middle school and college, I went from Lizzo to Lizzo. <laughs> I love it. Well, uh, prepping for this, I learned a, a, a lot about you. And one of the things that I found interesting was that your, I guess it's your great-grandparents actually founded the church that you grew up in. Is that right? Yeah. And that that was really a big part of your your upbringing, right? Absolutely. Uh, Kojic, shout out Church of God in Christ. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mama Kirkwood, my great grandmother and Daddy Kirkwood, her husband, um, they started uh, a family church and they moved to Detroit. Um, I feel like in the 30s, mom, it was the 30s. My mama not here no more. <laughs> <laughs> and um yeah, I grew up in this church at Mercy Faith Temple, and we would go to church every Sunday, and um, the congregation is your family members, and the choir is your family members, and the band is your family members, and the the elders are your family members, the, the bishop, and I'm so used to that. I'm actually not used to the opposite, where it's like, oh, no, the congregation is a bunch of people who come together who aren't blood-related. Like, <laughs> it was like, a few people who weren't blood related, who became like family to us. And that's where, as with many great singers, uh, obviously probably most famously Aretha, is that where mm -hmm. music first entered the picture for you? Absolutely. Yeah. It was music in church is transcendent, um, especially black church where you catch the spirit and um, um, the Pentecostal sect of Baptist church, you catch the spirit and you run around and it's the music that drives that. It's, of course, it's God and it's the connection to God and the word, but there ain't nothing like a to really get you to elevate. And um, I remember being, you know, exposed to that at such a young age. And then there's, you know, praise and worship music and um, the reverence of like a choir singing quietly in harmony um, and feeling like outside of your body and connected to a higher source. Um, I think that's where m my music, it's not even like where it began. It, I was born into it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like woven in my DNA. Now, were you allowed to listen to other kinds of music at home? No, I wasn't. For first 10 years of my life, I was listening to the Winans, and um, we listened to Stevie. Stevie was cool, you know what I mean? Um, but it was strictly gospel music. Uh, Clark Sisters, <sighs> yeah, we weren't able to really listen to radio or secular music or, or devil music. <laughs> <laughs> and so when that other world of music opened up to you, I guess you were old enough to be allowed to do it, or you just did it because you wanted to, whatever, I have read that I'm going to just say three examples that I've heard were, were big for you. And then correct me, obviously, if it's wrong, but Destiny's Child, Queen Latifah, and most of all, maybe I'm looking at a beautiful picture of you two right now, Missy Elliott. Yes. Why were they, why were they so powerful and influential for you? <sighs> I'm going to start with Queen Latifah because she was more than like a musical influence, obviously, because she really, her rap reign kind of had 
transitioned into TV and just being a household name when I was a kid, when I was a baby too. So um, it was more of her existing that had an effect on me and how multifaceted and how everything she is. And also it was the only celebrity that people would say I looked like, oh. you know, I will say I'm looking when I came in today, this people magazine cover uh-huh. of yours. I don't know. I honestly thought for a second. Am I giving I Dana? I thought it was. <laughs> so, I mean, what what a powerful, you know, ode to representation. Having a celebrity was like, you look like Queen Latifah. I'm like, wow, I'm, I look like somebody. And I think that that was really special for me as a kid. Um, Missy Elliott, obviously just being one of the most talented uh, songwriter, producer, singer, rapper, dancer, creative, artist, performer, style icon, like literally of all time, like seriously up there, put her next to Prince, Michael Jackson. I don't care what happens after this podcast. (laughs) Come for me. Don't at me though. I'm sensitive. (laughs) But seriously, and it was actually like, what an, what a privilege to be born and to witness that in real time. Like all of us are very, very, whoo, I'm emotional, lucky to have witnessed Missy Elliott. And she's here. Thank God she's here. So that was important. And then um, Destiny's Child was and is um, one of the greatest girl groups of all time. And they came from Houston, Texas. I moved to Houston, Texas when I was 10 years old and And that's when Destiny's Child was like blowing up to be the biggest thing on the planet. And everyone had a hometown hero story about the girls. And that made me feel like it was possible for me, too. And in fact, you had a few girl groups of your own as a kid. And was that um, I mean, it was it was interesting reading that, you know, you're singing about, I, I believe, like, broken homes and stuff that <laughs> stuff that like you were not thankfully uh personally experiencing yeah. but like is that the first time kind of writing i mean writing i guess that's its own art form when it's not your own experience right it's interesting because i was like literally so young when i wrote that song i had to have been like 11 or 12 talking about broken households, children lost hope, family struggling, battling sin. And I had a whole verse with a little girl being like, Mommy, I need you. <laughs> I'm like, what? But you know, it's it's interesting because like I that was my passion to write a song like that. And like I guess some things never change. Oh, that's amazing. That's how early the, the seeds were there. Well, and I guess at around the same time, can you tell our listeners who was James Browden? Who was James Brown? No, Browden. James Browden. Yeah, yeah. Boy, I thought you said James Brown. I was about to say, I'm Get out of here. Get out of my house. Yeah. I got scared. No. Um, yes, Mr. Browden. Mr. Yes. Browden. Um, is my first band director and um he was the band director of the young blood intermediate school band concert band and jazz band give it to him and he um made us so cool we were the bad he would call us the baddest band in the land which i think like as a 12 year old like playing like a instrument you're like really (laughs) you know and he made it very 
cool to be in band where you don't hear that actually synonymous with being in band at that age. You hear band geek, band nerd. But like it was like, no, at our school, it was like we're playing songs off the radio. We're playing Biggie Smalls. We're playing hits where we got choreography. We're on the local news playing, talking about chocolate chip cookies and milk, (laughs) stomping. You know what I'm saying? Like we we really did that. And I feel like he made me fall in love with music. Um, one of the best teachers I've ever had in my entire life. And I started playing the flute with him. I was going to ask you, so like, was that just like, all right, everybody pick an instrument or somebody suggested like, cause that's, that was a big moment in your life. The fact that you ended up yeah. doing the flute instead of yeah. anything else. What, how did that happen? Almost like so important that if we were doing like a movie of my life yeah. that's like a pivotal scene yeah, right? that's like the scene where you pan in and yes. it's like <laughs> the music swells I um yeah I was chosen which is so ridiculous to say but it's like I really was like chosen it was ridiculously cliche we were everyone else got to pick their instruments a lot of the kids were like oh I want to play drums or I want to play tuba whatever and there was one other person that was Mr. Browden and there was a lady. She was the flute specialist. There was no specialist for any other instrument. And really what I think it was, because I was a kid back then. Right. Now I'm like, I think she was in college. And I think she was like coming to our intermediate school to like, you know, get some experience right. and everything. And he was like, who do you, it was almost like a, who do you want to play flute? Like a throwaway type thing. And she looked at all of us and she literally, I believe I was the first person she picked. She smiled and was like, you and I was like so excited because that's what I wanted to play. Do you have any idea why she went for you? I to this day don't know. I have a whisper of a memory that was like, oh, my embouchure. Mm-hmm. Like, you look like you would have a good flute embouchure. Like, the, is that like basically the shape of your mouth? The shape of your mouth in, in regards to the instrument. Because flute is a really difficult um, instrument. Uh, it is a wind instrument, but it has no reed. And a lot of wind instruments have reeds. And, you know, you squeeze the reed, you put the reed in, you squeeze it in, and you kind of can squeeze enough to make sound pretty easily. But flute, you have to actually create, your mouth is like the reed going directing the air into the the head joint um so the mouthpiece i should say so i was honored it's a compliment that i could play this extremely difficult instrument and i remember the from the day one we started off by holding the head joints and just going into the mouthpiece and i was like i'm gonna be the best fucking flute player (laughs) of all fucking time i remember (laughs) i remember thinking that when i was sitting there i was like i'm doing this i'm taking it all the way there but people your people should understand like you're not joking around like you really stuck we'll get to how this all unfolded in in a bit but i mean essentially you were studying trained classical uh musician mm-hmm. not you know a lot of people kind of just show up and blow up or whatever but this there's a lot that preceded people kind of becoming aware of you in the mm-hmm. general so anyway but let's i guess another big step along the way is where singing non-church music first enters I guess, well, beyond your, your girl groups that we were talking about. And so what, I guess Houston is really associated with freestyle rap. Is that fair to say? Houston was associated with a lot musically. It was like, because in Detroit, my entire family was in the church and was there. Mm -hmm. Grandmother, cousins, all of that, aunties. And when we moved to Houston, it was just my immediate family. It was my mommy, my daddy, my sister, my brother, Mm -hmm. and me. Mm -hmm. 
and we didn't have a family church. It kind of felt weird going to other churches. There were a lot of mega churches down there, which Mercy Faith is not a mega church. It's a small family church, you know, with an airbrush photo of my great grandma on the wall. And it's like in Houston, you know, these churches had helipads. <laughs> and I don't mean hell, I mean helicopter yeah, pads yeah. where the pastor would fly from church to church. And so we didn't feel comfortable in these spaces. They were too big, too impersonal to us, you know. I mean, we love God, but you know, the church is really important to how you relate to God. So we didn't we lost a lot of our connection to religion. Um, my faith and my belief in my spirituality is stronger than ever, but my religious practice of going to a building of sanctuary every Sunday was gone. Listening to that music was gone. And I feel like it kind of um, allowed a lot of other things to come in, which, yeah, freestyle rap. Houston is, I would say, the capital if not. I mean, New York is the capital, too, of freestyle rap, but Houston, Texas, baby— you didn't go to a Houston, Texas school if you didn't bang on the cafeteria <laughs> desk or the side of the bus walls and freestyle. If you ain't say, man, hold up, man, what's the deal? You're not from Houston. <laughs> <laughs> and you were, it was clear like early on that you were very good at that? Or was that, or was it, were you unusually good at that? I was good at freestyling. Yeah. I, I was, which is interesting. I, I could just throw the words together, even to this day, like, Lexo, who I talk about a lot, she'll be like, you can just think of words quick. Like, I can't. And um, so, yeah, I would do it and people will go, oh, oh, you know. But once again, I was still in band. I was still me. So, you know, I wasn't the freestyle queen like I would have been if I had a little bit more confidence. But I was good at it. So it seems like there were two roads that there was there was going to have to be a decision at some point. You've got this kind of like classical music side of with with the flute you've got the freestyle rap side not that they can't mix i know flute shows up a lot in in rap actually people sometimes forget but mm. but for you if you when you were originally planning to you know getting ready to graduate from high school there's a there's a i guess a person who you were studying flute with who made the idea of college attainable yes because you were working with her yes um, my professor, Sydney Carlson, who is incredible. Um, she was like so important to me, saw my skill and my, my raw talent and was like, let's refine this and turn this into something. Cause you have an incredible gift. And, um, I would do lessons at her house and she would, you know, really mentor me and um, helped me get a scholarship to the University of Houston, the Moores School of Music, where I studied flute performance. That was my, you know, I went to school. That was my degree. With the dream of doing what? With the dream of, of, of going to, um, she had already set this up and seen it for me. You're going to go to the Paris Conservatory. You're going to study under, and I remember the person's name was Patrice. I don't remember their last name. You're going to study under people like Patrice. can't remember the last name. And then you're going to be in a, a, you know, the ballet or the pops or a symphony somewhere. And that was really it for me. You know, I thought that that was a really smart career choice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it was attainable. 
um, much more attainable than being a pop star. Sure, sure. <laughs> and it was unique enough for me because I always knew I would do something unique. I never thought that like the typical route, I never saw myself falling in love, getting married, having kids and like working at a desk. I always saw myself kind of bucking against the norms because even in a in a symphony orchestra, I was like, I'm going to have crazy hair and I'm going to wear big <laughs> earrings and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to look different. Because yeah. even when I would go to flute camp, I would dress up different and people would be like, how are you able to do that with nails? <laughs> I'm like, I can do anything. <laughs> so I was always going to kind of stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, life happens. Well, so, yeah, I guess. And it, it really kind of came to a head sophomore year. You have to. I guess you made a made a calculation. Like again, it's these two paths, and what tipped it towards singing rather than than classical music? When I'm looking back on it, I believe it was anxiety. Very undiagnosed. I didn't know what that word was back then. Especially, you know, a black person from Houston. I didn't use words like that. I didn't use words like therapy or I'm anxious or I'm depressed. It was more like. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I can't, I can't articulate this, but I don't like it. I'm over, I was overwhelmed and I felt a lot of pressure and there was a lot going on in my personal life that I was using school as escapism for. And like the world I was escaping to at school wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. So when you left school, it's not like that was an easy period for a couple of years there, right? Can, in fact, like, is if I have the chronology right, that's when kind of suddenly, right, you lose your dad. Mm -hmm. You are living without a, a home. Mm -hmm. What was that? What was that period like? What? What? Why? And what keeps you going when all that's uh, happening around you? That was a period of my life where I was definitely on autopilot and I didn't have the capacity to like fully experience the spectrum of emotion that I was actually experiencing. Um, I was like very disappointed and embarrassed when I dropped out of college. I was like so embarrassed. I was so ashamed that I stopped speaking and, um, because I didn't know what to say. I had nothing to say. And I was like so angry and I didn't want to say mean things to people. They didn't deserve it. So I just kept it to myself. And I was like literally silent. Like I didn't speak to people even in the same room. I didn't say hello. I didn't say goodbye. They asked me questions and I was, my mouth was like literally glued shut for months. And I remember being like, okay, cool. I'm going to, I'm going to just pursue music in a different way. Maybe not flute, but singing, rapping, whatever. It was very delusional. <laughs> but I went back to Houston because I was with my family in Denver for a little bit. And I went back to Houston. And, um, you know, at that time, my dad was already had already had his first stroke. So he was already sick and he couldn't work anymore, you know. And I think, like, instead of confronting what was happening with my family and my personal life, I was just like roughing it. I was like, all right, let me just, I was like so 
driven to like make something happen so I could once I made that thing happen I could take it back and fix my my family and fix my personal life but until then I had to just focus on the goal here and the goal was just to change something up make something happen and I think like I was doing it very scruffily <laughs> it was by the hairs of my chinny chin chin I I was very irresponsible, I think. It was the irresponsibility that, you know, got me out of where I was living. I couldn't afford to live where I was living anymore. Um, when my father passed away, I didn't want to work anymore. So I stopped. I was like a makeup artist at like a makeup counter in Dillard's. And I remember the day he passed away, I went to work too the next day. And I remember I was just kind of standing there staring in a space and you're like supposed to be a salesperson and like bring people in. And I was just staring in a space. And then one of my like, like colleagues at work was like, yo, you okay? And I was like, my dad died last night. And they were like, go home. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, okay. I was like so catatonic. And, um, I didn't want to do anything. I was like really over like, life as it was, I was like, I know this isn't what life is supposed to be. Like maybe life shouldn't be, you know, those kinds of thoughts. And I have been kind of brought down to the bare minimum of existence. You don't got no car. You don't got no apartment no more. You don't got no money. You don't got no daddy. <laughs> you don't got no job. You are sleeping in the car. You're sleeping in the band studio. You're sleeping on your drummer's floor. You're eating dinner at people's houses when they say, hey, you can come and have dinner with us tonight. That's where I was at. And I was like, this is like, I wasn't, I actually didn't even process what it felt like to be there. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I feel like the rest of my life has been dedicated to healing that period. And it's not like it just flipped a switch and it was better. I mean, people should know that when you were, I mean, I, th I think like for just the thing that blows my mind, I think when you were, uh, the night you won your three Grammys, you were up for best new artist. This is 2019, I believe. It was the 2020 Grammys. 20, right. Yes, I was nominated 2019. You were, the idea that you were a new artist in 2019, 2020 is nuts because the amount of touring when we say, but like not touring in a glamorous bus or anything when you're just hustling to get gigs, right? Yeah. That's demoralizing in itself, right? I mean, you were, this is, I guess, I don't know if it was before or after you, there's a, there's a point where you decide you're going to Minneapolis and I don't know if yeah. you can share why, why that was, but I think probably on both sides of that move before and after it's a hustle. Definitely is a hustle. And I'm so incredibly grateful for the life I've experienced because it has prepared me in insurmountable ways for the life that I have now. And this shit is a breeze. <laughs> this is a cakewalk. Right. Um, and yeah, I, 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 um, I met a producer you know, and I'll keep a lot of things vague out of people's privacy. But I met a producer 
And I was in I was in Houston at the time. My band was going through it. I don't know. We was I was in a rock band and we were all arguing, getting into it. It wasn't cute no more. <laughs> and I was I was uh I wasn't zooming back then. God, what was I doing? Skyping. Yeah, I right. was Skyping with a um shout out Skype with a producer and he lived in Denver, but he's from Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. So he would be like, Hey, you know, um I'll, if I send you beats, can you like sing on them and I was like yeah I can sing on them I can rap on them too you know because I can do everything he was like cool do it so I would just like send him stuff back and forth and then he was like all right well dude come to like Denver and like be in my band and I was like okay my mom is in Denver you know it I can go out there so I did that and we like did the Denver scene for a year and he was like yo I'm moving to Minneapolis do you want to come with me and I was like hmm there were a few things that made the that decision for me mm-hmm. I'm gonna just keep it real short and cute. But um, I went down to South by Southwest, and I went there every year. I, I've been going to South by Southwest as old as I could go. I went as a thought all the way to headlining shows. Oh my god! Wow. <laughs> but I went, and every person I met, every band I saw was from Minneapolis. I was like, "Does Minneapolis even have a scene?" And then he was like, "Yeah." I went to South by Southwest. I was like, "Where are you guys from?" Oh, Minneapolis. Where are you from? Minneapolis. And I was like, "Whoa!" Like the universe is saying, "Go to Minneapolis." So I was like, I'm gonna go play a show. We went and we played. Uh, I played a show with him. And at the end of the show, there was a girl in the crowd. And when I walked out after the show, she was crying. And she was like, do you live here? And I was like, no. And she was like, you need to be here. And she was like, literally crying. And I was like, yo, all these signs are saying going to Minneapolis. So we packed up his Jeep and I and I went out there. Like, my mom was like, you can always come back if it doesn't work out. And meanwhile, within... A year of being there, I guess you connected with the people. You're going to do your first solo album. This is in 2013, Lizzo Bangers. And the second is 2015, Big Girl, Small World. And I guess the other, uh, you, I know you had some some girl groups there that you you were talking yeah. about earlier. Um, I think it's in the same time period that you got your first taste of maybe some national tension. Because I believe in 2014, you were saying is when you did Letterman. Um, mm-hmm. and actually just one, one thing, uh, about that, I guess the second album, you, it, I believe it included your song, my skin, yes, which you've said is quote, the beginning of my body positive songwriting journey, close quote. Mm-hmm. So what made you decide for the first time with that one to address that subject matter? I think there were th- things happening very like broad political things happening and then very like personal intimate discoveries uh and i took both of those things which is kind of the formula for a lizzo song yeah um inadvertently and um made them into something that i wanted not only for me but for other people to find useful and to help themselves there was a um there was an interview i did around that time where they asked me my favorite thing about myself and I was like, oh, my personality. And they were like, oh, that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about physically and I couldn't think of anything. And um, when I finally decided, oh, my skin is my favorite thing about myself, I just started crying in the interview, which is so embarrassing now to think about it. But it was like, it was like I hit, I hit a very tender nerve and a, a self-discovery I didn't even know. Um, I, 
And I was like, wow, I love my skin. And then, you know, in the same time period, there was a police murder like a block from my house in Minneapolis of a young unarmed black man. And I was like, the thing that I love about myself the most is the thing that I'm hated for the most in this country. And it was just like blowing my mind. And I was like, I need to articulate this in the best way that I can. And it was through music. And I think I found the way that I felt after writing a song like that is the point. Yeah. I think writing music selfishly un is great. And I, and I know how to do that, but I've, I've realized that my purpose is to create music that can heal and help and change, make, make some kind of change, even if it's on a individual level. And that was the beginning of it. Well, that's great. The other last thing I'll ask you about Minneapolis is you can guess where this is going. Yeah. I, I guess after quite a while being there, you're becoming more of a known person so much so. And I guess this was or locally so much so that you get on the radar of the most legendary musician to ever come out of Minneapolis or to be in Minneapolis Prince. Yeah. How did uh, how'd you first hear from him? Well, it wasn't, I, here's the incredible part is that I wasn't actually getting well known oh, really? <laughs> before, you know, he reached out. It was my first girl group. Uh, we did a documentary cause I hadn't even done Lizzo bangers yet because on Lizzo bangers, I had a song called Paris that Prince loved and he wanted me to perform at his album release party. All right, we'll talk about that later. But um, <laughs> he saw the girl group, me and Sophia Ayers, my DJ, and another girl. And because um, Plectrum, Electrum, his girl group, yeah. we were all in the same documentary, local documentary. And he was like, who are those girls? And he um, contacted the current, the radio station. And they said, you won't believe who just emailed us. And we were like, oh. And um, after that, it was just like, come to Paisley Park. It was Easter Sunday the first time and he wanted us to get on a song. And so we got on Boy Trouble and literally just um, one of the most surreal experiences of my entire life. And I've had lots of surreal moments to the point where even talking about it feels not real. Do you know what I mean? Totally. Like it's not real. Because <laughs> I mean, he... Uh, I, I know like when he took an interest in a young artist, he actively genuinely took it. Like, it for, I know for you, you, yeah. it's not like a one-time thing. You're there. You're, you were there. Mm -hmm. Sounds like quite a bit. You were on his album in mm -hmm. 2014. Yeah. He talks about me in articles when nobody was talking about me. Right. Nobody was checking for me. He said, Lizzo is next. I mean, that kind of confidence that someone can have in you, like I've never had any cosigns. Like 
you know? And I feel like in rap, because I was really a rapper back then. I was rapidly rap, 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 rap. <laughs> It was like, man, I was waiting for that cosign from somebody. I was like, why doesn't anyone, why isn't anyone proud of me? Why, you know? And Prince was like proud of me. And not only proud of me, he believed that, you know, I was next. Next is like, that has a lot of weight culturally, black culture. Oh, Lizzo next for Prince to say that. <laughs> well, and so he was obviously right. And he saw the beginning of that. Right. So you actually had just gone off to L.A. for the first time, just moved to L.A. Right. Mm -hmm. When when he passed away. Yeah. I had just moved to L.A. Yeah. Um Yeah, I just, it's like still hard to talk about because there's just so much like, there's so much like love and respect there. And it was just so much to learn and do. And it's sad, but I'm... He would be Ooh. so proud, though. Look yeah. at this. It's amazing. I'm so grateful. I'm absolutely so grateful. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, well, so being in L.A., I guess, is when you met another person who was then going to become similarly, I would say, maybe similarly important in your yeah. development. This is the person who ends up signing you to Atlantic Records. Yes. Ricky Reed. Um, and you guys, you, what you, I guess what you've said about him is that he's basically somebody who told you you're, you're coming up with lyrics and you don't even know their lyrics, right? I mean, you were, you were kind of selling yourself short in a way, right? Yeah. Um, it, what Ricky does, I don't even want to say did, what Ricky does is... Um, there's someone inside of me that I'm not, you know, privy to. <laughs> and that person is continuously like brought out. It, and just when you think the me is out, <laughs> Ricky dives very deeply <laughs> and pulls more out, you know, and I am just so like, impressed by that person. I'm like, oh my gosh, Lizzo girl, who is this? And I can say that it was like, there was this one moment in time that I can really say, I was like, whoa, what's happening? And it was when I was recording the song Worship from Coconut Oil. And, you know, Ricky said, I was like so into my rap. I was like, I'm a rapper who can sing my hooks. Like that was my thesis about myself. Right. My pull quote. And Ricky was like, can you sing? And I was like, yeah, 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 I sing, I sing, I can do like melodic stuff, like very chill stuff. And he was like, okay, um, can you sing this and this note? Ah, you know, like, and I was like, uh, I'll try. So I hit the hands to the sky, show me that you're mine. That part, that's way lower than it actually is. And I was singing it full out and I felt like it was a disembodied voice, like, the vocal that was coming out of me, I don't, I don't know if it was the headphone to the situation. I don't know if it was latency for all my producers out there, but I was like, whose voice is this? Like, I couldn't even feel the vibrations coming out of my, like, vocal cord. Like, it felt like another person. 
And um, after that, I was like, oh, I guess I can like sing. <laughs> <laughs> I guess anytime somebody says, hey, can you sing? You say yes. <laughs> well, and, and so that was, you mentioned Coconut Oil. That's 2016 EP, which also had Good As Hell on it. I do my You kind of up until that point, I guess, thought of yourself as primarily like an indie performer. This is now, all right, this is a radio song. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is, this is like cool. Like <laughs> songs that are like big pop songs that I write scare me. Like I'm always like, oh, I'm scared of this one, you know? Why do you think? Uh, because <laughs> of its potential, I think. The potential is bigger than I can see and it just freaks me out. I'm like, what is this going to mean for my life? Like, am I going to have privacy anymore? <laughs> <laughs> and good as hell for me when it, Came out, it was in Barbershop 3. I got to go to the premiere. Ice Cube was there. Nicki Minaj was there. I was like, whoa, like, this is about to be, I'm about to have a number one song. <laughs> and then it, you know, didn't go number one or any, it, it didn't chart like that. Um, I don't think it charted at all. Well, it's interesting because you're saying, I think the a similar thing happens with the next year, I, I think that it would have been with Truth Hurts. You put it out in 2017. It wasn't until two years later that it actually blew out. Like, there's all these things where you're essentially maybe, like, getting a false alarm. Like, this should be the one that does it. This is going to be the one. And Right? Yeah. And you know what? When I say the one, it was, I, I've, I've never made music for the purpose of it blowing up and blowing me up. Like I always made music like, this is like the best thing I've ever done. Everyone should hear this. That was always like my mentality. And with Truth Hurts, I was like, oh, this is like the best thing I, and the best music video I've ever done and the best song. And I was like, this is insane. Like I was really scared. When I say it, when I, when I make big songs and I'm scared, this one I yeah. was like in the corner, like, <laughs> cause it was just, it was just that. Yeah. And, um, you know, <laughs> the song dropped and actually it was a, the, the music video and the song were supposed to premiere on a major blog and magazine. And then it went dark. They went dark the day of. And I was like, oh, so they're not going to drop my video. They're not going to drop my song. Does anyone care? Does anyone care about me? Does And, um, it was really depressing. I was like, update. I was like, is it out? Is it out? And they're like, they're still dark. We haven't heard anything. And I was like, so I was like, yeah, this, this is a sign. Like maybe I should just stop, you know? And this is with the song that ends up going seven times platinum. It just took two years for people to catch up with it. Maybe a little help from the Netflix movie that featured it. Someone great. Right. But I mean, we have to, this brings us to 2019, which was the mm -hmm. year that everybody... Also, we might be eight or nine times platinum. Eight or nine already? Okay. I think so. I'm not sure. Let's get that Wikipedia update, we'll guys. Get the <laughs> <Alana>. <laughs> um, but, okay, so I think most people discovered you in 2019 with Because mm -hmm. I Love You, your third album. You've said that this was the one that kind of set... That was different from others before because you're being more vulnerable than uh, maybe before... And um, 
drops in April 2019, right about the same time you're performing at Coachella. And I guess life was probably never the same after that. So can I ask you just a thought or two about several of these singles that people, you know, can't stop playing since then? Please. Thank you. So, you know, we talked about Truth Hurts, took these two years, comes back. You, I guess you, I don't know if it was re-released or if it was just, uh, yeah, it was part of that album, right? Yes. So We put it on the deluxe. Put it on the deluxe. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So um, this one... Number one on the Billboard Hot 100 for six weeks. However, at least seven times platinum. Um, in some ways, I, I mean, I saw, I think there was a thing New York Times did, like 25 songs that define our time or something oh, like wow. that. And that's one of them. Just the thing that you think about when that song, you know, when, when you're coming to that song in a concert or whatever, what that song represents to you. <sighs> that song puts me like right in front of the person that's listening to it. Whenever I do that song, I don't, you know, why you, you be making people cry a lot. What's wrong with you? Has, do he be making people cry? Once in a while. <laughs> yeah. I've been saying this a lot and a lot of people have been printing this. And I'm like, when I was a little kid, one of my dreams was to write a song that the world could sing back at me. And I think I've been so wrapped up in this album promo and work, 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 that I need to stop and realize you did. Yeah, exactly. That's the song. That's the song of like little me's dreams. Mm -hmm. I did it. And it feels incredible to stand there and just with one single note, Doom, doom. You know, like people go one piano hit, people go bananas. Why men great so they gotta be great? Woo. I just took a DNA test, turns out I'm a hundred percent that bitch. Even when I'm crying crazy, yeah, I got boy problems. That's the human in me. Bling bling, then I solve them. That's the goddess in me. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Another one on that one, just incredible how many uh, songs that everybody knows from this album. <laughs> Juice, I think you performed it on Ellen and that ignited that one, <laughs> right? Yes. Right through the roof. Um, also, multiple times platinum. Just, uh, I love that even like uh, Terry Gross on NPR is asking you about <laughs> Juice. Uh, anything you want to say about Juice? Juice. Um... I'm so proud of myself for Juice because that was a big moment for me as like a boss when it comes to like bossing up and speaking up for myself. Like we were close to the end of the album process at that time. And um, I had written a lot of songs and I had gone through a lot 
you know, emotionally and mentally in the studio. And um, it was a really kind of hard time for your girl. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I remember I had Ricky Reed in the room and Teron Thomas, who is my collaborator, only person I trust in the room with me. And um, I was looking at them and I was like, kind of really fed up. And I was like, yo, you make hit beats and you write hit songs. So do what you do. Do your jobs. I'm leaving and I'll be back. I was like, first let's pick a, I was like, and then I came back and I was like, all right, let's pick the track. And I heard the guitars and I was like, that's emotional. That <laughs> And I was like, that's emotional. Y'all write the song. And I never, I never do that. Cause I'm such a, I gotta be a part of this. And I left and then um, I came back and the song, the, all I heard was mirror, mirror on the wall. Don't say it because I know I'm cute. And I was like, let's go. And I was so in it. I was, so, I was like, this is my baby. I'm invested in the song. Let's go. And, and we took it to this place that just kind of went above and beyond. But I was really proud of myself for bossing up because I had been going through so much um, in the studio. And I'm so proud of the way I fell in love with that song and the way that I, I took that song to the place it's at is disco. It's fun. I didn't oh, even yeah. realize I was doing, and you know, now we see all this disco and we see all this funk. And I was like, this is a weird song. And now this song is like right at home yeah. with the Started landscape of pop. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I'm super proud of that. I take ownership in that. <laughs> Now, how about you get to collaborate with one of the aforementioned heroes, Missy Elliott, on tempo? Uh, that's got to be pretty cool. When most people don't get to meet their heroes, let alone, you know, not to, to say nothing of collaborate with them. Mm, that. So that's great. I got I got stories on stories, <laughs> but I'll just say very simply, like, you know, Missy Elliott uh, reached out before tempo, like I think like a year or so. I hadn't seen her in years before that. And was like, hey, come in the studio in Atlanta. And I was like, huh? <laughs> like literally I thought I was never mind. I'm not <laughs> <laughs> My anxiety is so wild that I thought I wasn't gonna live to be able to go in the studio to meet Missy Elliott. I was like, my life can't get that good. Right, right. So after having a panic attack and talking it down and talking to several people, therapists, medium, friends, family, God, I finally got in the studio with her and <laughs> I didn't, I was like, I was too stunned to speak. The woman was too stunned to speak. I was like, do you, how do you communicate with the, what, how do you, words, use words. And um, I was playing Missy, some of my music that I had written and a lot of it, <laughs> I was like, I know she like. Not so into it. Well, she was like, you know, it sounded like her. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. But that's a it compliment. It was like, say my name, Melissa, and she's Melissa Elliott, you know, the Melissa Elliott. And I was like, this is wild. She's just looking at me like, girl, I see you, you know. <laughs> I, and um, after listening to everything, she was like, wow, you know. You got to remember to take it easy on your genius brain. You have a genius brain like me. And I was like, whoa, she thinks I'm like her. That's cool. She called me a genius. And, 
Uh, she threw me in the booth a bunch to freestyle, and I freestyled, and I freestyled, and I freestyled, and it was like the Freestyle Olympics. She, I would do it three times. She'd be like, all right, new track. Right. Three times, new track. I was like, wow, this is incredible. <laughs> and um, after that, like a year had passed, and that was like my time with her. And then when we wrote Tempo, I was like, yo. <laughs> Pretty amazing. <laughs> what if Missy hopped on this? And she did, and it's incredible, and the rest is history. Totally. So just to note the rest of that year, you uh, were in Hustlers, which was a big, big movie. You were the Grammy nominations come out November 20th, 2019. You lead the entire field of everybody in the world of music with eight nominations including one in all four of the major categories, best record, best album, best song, best new artist. And on the night of the show, January 26, 2020, and I was lucky enough to be there that <laughs> night at the Stable Center, you performed Cause I Love You and Truth Hurts, and you wound up with three of those. I just saw them over in the yeah. side here. Three beautiful little statues, put best pop solo performance for Truth Hurts, best traditional R&B performance for Jerome, best urban contemporary album for Cause I Love You Deluxe. Yes. What did that night mean to you the biggest flex of all of that is that i won three grammys in one night for three different genres yes <laughs> like how pop, often has that happened? urban and r&b which is just a testament to how much genre doesn't exist i know <laughs> you, you, you feel really strongly about that right i feel so strongly about that my voice is the genre um that night that day was such an interesting emotional day it's a kobe day yeah I woke up and I I woke up and I was like I am so grateful and I had never felt the amount of gratefulness ever before in my life. I feel like my whole life I had been reaching and searching and 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 what's next? Uh, frustrated and I woke up and it everything had settled and it was like I am Grateful was the only word I had. And so I got up and I was just like over and over. I was like, thank you, God. Thank you, God. And I was crying. I was crying. And then I put on gospel music because I was like, whew, this need, like, I need this. And I walked around that house and I just was singing and crying and grateful. It was just, it had overwhelmed me completely. And... Yeah, we got there and I had just no phone, nothing like that. And because I was like, I'm just singularly focused on this one thing. And um, my friend at the time, she was like, I have to tell you something terrible. And I was like, what's wrong? And she told me and I was like, well, there's what do you what do you like do? What, like, seriously, like, what do you do? How, like, stop everything. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Stop everything. And, um. And you're at the Staples Center. Yeah. Where have you played? We were in his house. Yeah. And I was like, 
like I feel the same way I feel now. Like my heart and my spine are like, I I'm, was like shaken. And I just sat there for a minute and was like, okay, well, what, what are they going to do? You know? And it was like, okay, we, I was opening the night and I'm like, man, what, what do, do I, do I just not do it? Do I, do we go home? Do we just turn this into a place where people can come a vigil? Like, what do we do? And I was like, there's no way I'm doing this unless I just say something. If this show is going to go on, I have to say something. And, um, it was interesting because I'm conducting, right? Like in my rehearsals, I I was like, I want to conduct my black orchestra and, and I wanted to pause for dramatic effect. And the pause was too long. The whole time in rehearsals, the pause was too long and we didn't shorten it. And they were like, well, the pause is too long. It's going to be a little awkward. That's okay. And then I was fine with that. And then the night of, it was like the pause was like a little too long. And I was like, I have the amount, the perfect amount of time to say tonight is for Kobe. Mm-hmm. And... At that point, it was like, this performance ain't about me. This award isn't about me. I won the first award of the night. And I was like, this isn't even about me right now. Like, God has put me in a position where there's a microphone and a camera and millions of people and that times two of ears listening to what I have to say right now. What are you going to do? This isn't about you. You were put in this position because you need to just, whatever it is, facilitate it. Yeah, yeah. So... That still not about me. You know what I mean? Like, I don't talk about it a lot. I'm, you're the first person I've actually kind of gone a little bit more into detail about because I've always felt like never wanted to take attention from that. No, well, I'll tell you, though, just as an audience member in the house that night, you and Alicia Keys, who was, was hosting, I think it really gave some purpose to the night because otherwise as you say like everybody's kind of looking around like oh, should we even be here what yeah. are we doing but it turned into a, a, a tribute concert in a way mm-hmm. and that was because you and Alicia Keys I think set the tone for mm-hmm. for the night so it was a I'm sure what a mixed emotion night yeah. because one of the great nights of your life in a lot of ways but always associated with that but mm-hmm. i guess in the this brings us to the the, the home stretch of everything that's happened mm-hmm. since then where you had said once before in another interview quote i was going into dive bars and getting shit faced in 2018 mm-hmm. and nobody knew who i was and nobody was bothering me mm-hmm. by 2019 i noticed i couldn't go to restaurants with my dancers and stuff close quote so in the middle of everything that we're talking about your life is you're not only you know making successful music, but that comes with being a uh, public person, maybe more than even you could have expected when you were saying you were worried about what happens if I have a hit. Um, And I guess, though, part of what it seems like you've done with that is said, all right, I have a spotlight on me. Let's see if we can, where I go, I can bring that spotlight on other people who I want to highlight, which is basically what Lizzo's Watch Out for the Big Girl's is right oh here we are full circle um and we should just say this is if anyone doesn't know yet i think most people do reality competition show debuted in march on which you are seeking dancers ahead of bonnaroo to join your your dance team specifically seeking what you what you call big girl dancers mm -hmm. um who don't really get a fair shot the rest of the time yes and i guess that was even why you 
it was less about making a TV show than finding dancers, right? It was absolutely about finding dancers. I, but, but a thing that people don't know about me, I don't talk about because it's like a personal friend. If you're my friend, you know this. But one of my like <laughs> dreams is helping people make their dreams come true. And I know I, man, people gonna think that I'm lying or that I'm being, but I'm, I get off <laughs> on seeing people that I know and love make their dreams come true. Like I'm like every, for years I've been looking at people and I'm like, use me. Like I, God doesn't put like people who are, you know, have negative intentions for me around me. Thank goodness. But I, I'll be like, whatever you need, <laughs> like I'm here. And there's nothing like that feeling of seeing somebody, like even when it comes to something simple, like Christmas, opening up a gift and being like, I have always wanted this. How did you know that feeling when like, that's like someone's dreams coming true and you can watch them and just be proud of them. Like, that does something for me more than anything, honestly, receiving gifts or making my own dreams come true at times. So I think like watch out for the big girls was inherently selfish. I needed dancers, <laughs> but it was this exchange that I'm realizing post production, post show that it was like, man, I needed them so much. I needed them just as much as they needed me. And um, it was things like in episode one, Charity, one of the dancers, after her first audition, she was like, I did it. I did it for you, you know? And it was like the way she said it. Um, it wasn't like, I did it for you. It was like, I did it for you. Yeah. And I'm like, why does this always get me? <laughs> well, but I mean, like you've, as, as you said, it's 2018 is like, what, four years ago that you, you could have gone around and and been basically anonymous and yeah. or seen somebody and it nice to see you but like it's not gonna rock their world you see every one of these people <laughs> when they come in and you surprise them that you're yeah. there for their first you know uh, audition or whatever you would call it is it have you gotten used to people responding that way to you you know it's so weird and I wonder if other people in my position will agree. I be feeling like people faking it. You think? <laughs> I'll be like, you're not that excited to see me. Like, they'll be like, oh my gosh. I'm like, okay, yeah, right. Like, you can stop acting. Uh, I don't think that I have that effect on people. Like, I don't, unless I see somebody who's like, I see they're like, what, they're like nervous system shutting down and they're like actually shaking and they're like actually genuinely like viscerally nervous and excited. If, they're just talking to me about it. I don't believe it. And that's so wild. You know, I should believe it. Well, yeah, I guess that's, is that what they call imposter syndrome, right? Yeah. But who wants to have an effect on people? Maybe there are people in the world who want to walk into a room and everyone stares at them and they start screaming and freaking out and crying. I don't want to have that effect on people. I really don't like. Is that because. When people look at me. <laughs> that, but I mean, that, does that feel like a, a responsibility, a burden too? If they, if you mean that much to these people then you got to almost always be on, right? You got to, you know, do you, is that what it's, was that why you're not sure how you feel about it? Well, being on is an interesting thing because I'm never like 
on or off. Right, like right, even right. my off is like pretty on. <laughs> I think I'm just naturally charming. That's a and, song. <laughs> even my hey, off is on. My off is on. Um, I, I, I feel like I'm just naturally this yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it was more or less like it's me. Like I've been me for a long time. If you've been you for two decades plus, and then all of a sudden, at a certain point in your life, you, sir, people start going, ah! <laughs> when they see you, you're going to be like, huh? It's weird. But do you think with these women in particular, it's it's not just any fan, right? It's These are fans who admire you not just because of the music, but because of your refusal to be limited by any other things that they themselves might be coming up against. Yeah, but it's also them seeing opportunities and their dreams coming true. They're like, wait, I used to dream about auditioning for a big artist, any artist. Yeah. And now here's one here. And I represent all of those things. Right. Uh, I, I, I'm sure that they were, just as shell shocked as you know what I'm saying is is not as I because I wasn't really shell shocked. But <laughs> well, would you have been if you were in their shoes and you're there was somebody because I don't even know if there was a I I can't think was if there I guess for you the equivalent might be one of the people we talked about earlier. But even they I don't know if there's quite an exact parallel if you know for if you had come in to audition for something like that for somebody else mm-hmm. how would you have mm-hmm. how would you have reacted? I stay very calm and quiet. Here's the thing. It doesn't matter. I, l- listen, Beyonce, I don't, I don't care what happens in my career. Beyonce will always be, I can't even like yeah. express it because she will always be that person that makes me scream and you know what I mean? Like I've seen her over 10 times and I, my dream was like, Ooh, maybe I could be in Beyonce's man. Beyonce had like um, auditions for like all female band back in the day, you know, I'm like, man, maybe I could be one day in her band or maybe I could be. And I'm trying to put myself in that position. If I walked in that room for her, like, even when people tell me like, yeah, you know, I've worked with Beyonce. She was in the, the, um, in the dance room or what is it called? Rehearsal space. Why do I not know it? I'm in them all the time, (laughs) a rehearsal space. And she was just, you know, chilling I was like what she was just chilling what, what, what did she wear what did she smell like like I I don't but I I will say this I'm always very quiet I get really quiet like I'll give you an example I saw Beyonce's hand once <laughs> at a Rock Nation brunch and she was in a high chair and, right. and I was behind the chair and her hand was to the side like resting on a table and I was like that's Beyonce's hand I know her hand anywhere that's her hand and I just I just get quiet and I just stare but and I don't know what she's to do. come and seen you, right? So is that where it really what what's the what's the phrase where it basically gets to be like more than a mind can handle? Um, I I chose to not look at her, okay, because I was so afraid that it was her. <laughs> I remember when I saw the flash of blonde in my peripheral. And I was like, that's not because my dream was that Beyonce would watch me at Made in America. I watched Beyonce watch Cardi B at Made in America just two years prior and was like, God, I wish that was me. I want her to watch my show so bad. And she did. And it was happening. And I was like, don't look. 
don't look, just perform. And I went so hard, probably too hard. <laughs> Cause just like Missy Elliott, I know Beyonce was looking like, okay, girl, you've seen too many of my live shows. <laughs> well, you've said, quote, I ain't new to stereotypes, but what I'm trying to do is dismantle every stereotype that I have the power to do, close quote. And I don't think that was just speaking about this reality show. That seems to be like your mantra or whatever for everything you mm -hmm. you do you were talking earlier when we sat down about your uh fashion line yitty uh, yitty uh you you know just in it seems like there's there's a recurring theme so and it's also interesting this this idea of positivity it's not you know people want to say body positive this is positivity in everything about somebody goes to your shows or listens to your music it's all i mean um even with this with this reality show, normally a reality competition show, somebody's getting sent home and somebody's being degraded or humiliated or, you know, you're not good enough. It, this might be the only reality competition show where that just doesn't really happen. Yeah. Intentionally. Yeah. Because, you know, at the end of the day, if I did that to these women, you know, what would make me any different than what society has done? You know, um, all of these, I've experienced what these women have experienced as well. And the last thing I wanted to do was create a culture that promoted the bullying and, and the, the degradation that the dance industry already does to bodies. Why would I do that? Why would I add to the fray? Um, it's revolutionary to do the opposite. <laughs> which is be kind and and to, you know, embrace people for who they are and to create an environment for them to flourish, give them opportunities. I'd rather grow with someone who's not the best at something, but who really wants to be there and is, is a good person than the person who's the best in their field, but has a bad attitude yeah. about it yeah. and is not cooperative and isn't down for me, you know. So I'd rather spend that time. And I think that's what this show was showing the world. Totally. Well, my last question for you, I so appreciate all your time. We are now less than a month away from your next new music. This is your fourth album called Special coming on July 15th. So kind of with that coming up and also with just having talked about how much has happened for you in leading up to, to this moment, just what's your, what's your mindset right now? Anything you want to take us inside? Uh, what it's like to be Lizzo in 2022, mid 2022. It is, um, it is interesting being me. I, everything that I do overlaps with the next thing and intersects with the other thing. And, uh, I am trying to, I am, I am optimal is my word. I am optimal in every single way. The album is done. Congratulations. <laughs> it's coming out and it's good. And I'm proud of it. And I want to do everything that I can to let the world know. Yeah. I was going to say promote, but that's such a weird word because promote has this like obligatory like uh, f filter on it that's like, Nah, I like, I want to brag. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's called bragging for me. And with Watch Out for the Big Girls, 
already award-winning yeah i have to say an congratulations award winning show. critics choice real awards right critics choice awards and um I'm just so proud of that. Like I didn't make the show with any type of intention of winning awards. You know, I made the show so that I could have all of these girls on stage with me at the BET awards at SNL (laughs) and, um, on tour this fall. So I've already won. Yeah. You know what I mean? So this is like, I'm in my cherry on top phase in my life. Yiddy is, um, I'm so excited about just like what Yiddy has done for the mindset and for the language that we use around bodies and clothing and shapewear and looking snatched and feeling good. Like with, with changing that and making that something that's like actually um, something that you can create for yourself. What's There's a word for that. Customizable. Yeah, there you go. So... I'm just excited. And now I'm like, now it's like, okay, Lizzo, you don't have to do that, but I'm doing it. Like I am always mood boarding in my head. I'm mood boarding as we speak and everything is a mood board, honey. What I'm about to eat for dinner is a mood board. (laughs) So I'm, I think that I'm just in my like creative jus right now. I'm in my bag and it, it's a it's a Birkin bag. <laughs> and I'm and I'm just happy to be here. I think everything that I do, anything that you see me do, I'm enjoying it because I'm present in it. Um and I wanna be there. You don't see me nowhere I don't wanna be. I wanted to be here with you today. I'm very I, honored. Thank I had you. so much fun. I'm about to literally get up and go cry in my bedroom. Uh, don't cry. I, think, <laughs> I can't thank you enough. You are wonderful and it's so exciting to follow everything you do and uh Just keep up the great work. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. Until next time, thanks for joining us. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.